Welcome back to The Socialist Shelf, the show that cares about two things. That is good fiction and changing the world. It's me, Jacob, and we are back with Joss. He has returned. Hello. It is good to be back. And uh, Joss, um, for those who may have listened to the Jurassic Park episode and may have an idea about the sort of... um, what, what, what can you tell us? What, what can you tell us about the sort of mammothification procedure that was discussed um, a few weeks ago before before you uh, you just mysteriously vanished? Well, there's a few steps to it, and uh, first and like chief among them is a uh, is a libectomy, right? I mm. had to go in and get the last of my liberalism removed. Okay, so, good. Yeah, in previous episodes, like if you thought to yourself, "Huh, this Joss fellow seems kind of like an unserious person," don't worry, that's not going to be a concern going forward. Okay, good, good, good. I, I, you know, uh, that's not a complaint we were getting. Uh, but to be fair, to be fair, um, we do have new listeners after that last uh, the jungle episode. Um, so you know, if if there, if we we've got a, uh, if any of these new listeners who um, you know, j- jumped on our show because you're fans of uh, Mason, um, well, uh, Joss is back, and you can look at him as critically as you want. It won't matter. All liberalism has been removed. So and once we and once we do get further in that mammothification process, you know, once we do like start up a Patreon or whatever, I, I tell you what, that top tier reward, a little bit of a mammoth meat. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, perfect. OK, well, let's get into it. The three body problem is what we are discussing today. Um, it is, you know, um, we haven't really done any um, anything quite like this. No hard sci fi as of yet. Parable of the Sower, you know, certainly closer to this than maybe anything else but it's this is this is really a sort of not the kind of thing that i think i i speak for myself here that i i typically get into i like science fiction but this is a very um this is a very well developed very hard line science fiction kind of novel here um from the author lu sishin uh chinese author and uh i will say i really enjoyed it um, but I think this is, it's going to take a lot of discussing. It's a different sort of angle than I, uh, typically, uh, than I, I typically read. I think, uh, Joss said the same and it's a, uh, I believe a 2006 serialized novel then releases a standalone in 2008, very successful novel. Uh, and of course we are not, um, we are not fluent in, um, you know, at least I'm not fluent in any other languages. So I read the English translation. I don't know about you. What about you, Joss? Yeah, no, same thing, same thing. And of course, has to be stressed again, Chinese book, Chinese author. There's going to be a lot of Chinese names in this. We do not speak Chinese, so we're going to do our best, but, you know, no promises. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and also, like, just going into it, um, you know, it is distinctly possible if you so happen to be a reader or a listener here who is, can read, um, you know, in multiple languages – uh, and you have read this in both versions. Um, I would be super curious to hear uh, what you have to say about, you know, the original translation of the novel and how it stacks up. I know it's super slim chance that, you know, anyone listening to this has actually done that. But if you would, I would I am actually dying to have a conversation with you. So let us know. But uh, without uh, further ado, let's get into the author. And I think Joss is uh, ready to give us some info on that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is one of the few authors that we're doing an episode on who is still living. Um, mm. I mean, Jerry B. Jenkins is still alive, but, you know, the, the, the main driving force behind Left Behind, Tim LaHaye, is, uh, is, 
in the ground. Yeah. Uh, long may that remain the case. Jerry V. Uh, Jenkins will always be alive. Like he's just going to keep scrapping his way up. Yes. Um, you know, yeah, the, the, the grind set will never die truly. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah. Uh, Lucy Shin was born uh, 23rd June, 1963 in Beijing. He was raised in uh, Yangchuan in uh, Shanxi and um and from age four, he actually lived in uh, Luoshan County in Henan. Um, mm. And this was to escape the the more chaotic uh, period of the uh, Cultural Revolution, yeah. um, during which time his parents were uh, were working in in uh, mines as opposed to their uh, as opposed to um, their more professional background. Um, do we want to get into the Cultural Revolution right away? Just like not too far into it, but just like drop a quick definition. Yeah, you can drop a quick definition. I feel like it'll be more constructive to speak about it through the context of this novel. But yeah, do do a, do your do a quick overview for those who may not know or you know may like to hear a, a different perspective on it than maybe what they heard you know just in school. Yeah, and I'm not going to get too far into the weeds about it. It's right. Essentially... That's a whole other podcast topic. Oh right yeah, you could have a whole thing on that. Yeah, and and indeed there are people who have yeah exactly but yeah so the cultural revolution um called in China the great proletarian cultural revolution it's a period from 1966 to about 1976 um mm-hmm. until Mao's death uh, of intense activism of uh, political activity and it sought to answer essentially two questions one how to purge more kind of uh, bourgeois elements from the uh, Communist Party of China and Chinese society more broadly. And two, how to radicalize a generation of people born after the revolutionary struggle of the Chinese Civil War and the Japanese invasion. Right. And it's not a terribly well understood period in the West, I would say. Um, if, if, if you bring up the Cultural Revolution to somebody, the first thing they'll probably say is, oh, you know, there's the Red Guards, right? Right. Um, which were student groups formed uh, at Mao's encouragement to carry out these struggles of the Cultural Revolution, right? To, to uh, travel and learn from the masses because... Travel in, in uh, China was free at the time, um, and it was deemed important to um, get people back into the uh, countryside and refamiliarize themselves with the uh, populace. Um, and we'll get into uh, we'll get into a little bit of the um, the uh, excesses and mistakes of the of the period um, because certainly there were some. That's kind of the context that the book takes place in, and indeed, it's what um, it's what was going on in the background of uh, of uh, of uh, Sixin Lu's childhood. And, and it's notable that uh, the Cultural Revolution, like you were saying, is not very well understood in the West. I would, you know, take a step further. Um, you know, I have, you know, friends that I, I know that are from China. Um, you know, uh, they've currently, uh, my, my main one that I knew, he has currently returned to China. But it, he even says he doesn't feel like it's very well understood in the East. It's a very contentious topic still, and there is still a lot of debate over exactly what happened, certain statistics, what was necessary, what wasn't necessary. Um, you know, the Chinese government's line on it has, you know, even evolved and shifted over the years in its exact criticisms. Um, and even defining the cultural revolution of when it started and when it ended and what exactly comprises it is a thing that is endlessly, uh, you know, been debated over there and certainly over here gets flattened in a way that's also not constructive to such a co- uh, complicated event. Um, so yeah, it is a issue that is still, um, you know, very touchy and very complicated over there. And it is all, and, you know, over here, of course, just gets simplified into sort of a China bad narrative, like everything does. Um, and so I think it is super important 
to get this kind of perspective in this book for this, you know, not to say it's not political, but to get this perspective from someone who is living through this politically tumultuous time from this sort of science fiction angle that is not trying to make a statement or a value judgment. Um, I think it is a really useful context for us to have. And that's part of the things that part of the thing that really drew me to this book, honestly. Yes, and indeed, um, um, Liu himself is not a very political person. He kind of mm. shies away from discussions of politics. You know, there's a there's an article in the uh, in the New Yorker that I think is a little is a little bit hard on him um, yeah. for that for that specific reason. Um, but yeah, his his line on it basically is: Look, you know, there's context to there, there's cultural context to what I'm writing. You know, as there is for any author. But his his goal is to just tell stories based on that, right? Sure, and um, he's got some interesting stories, no doubt. Yeah. And and his story indeed is interesting. Um, he taught himself to make gunpowder in grade school. Mm -hmm. As uh, we all he, did. Yeah, yeah. No, he had a very deep and abiding sort of uh, interest uh, in um, in uh, the sciences from a young age. Um, and it was a really good time to be interested in the sciences if you were a Chinese kid, because when he was uh, six years old, um, China launched its first satellite, mm. uh, Dongfang Hong number one, or the East is Red number one. This is mm. April. 1970 which um just 21 years out from the um from the end of the civil war is just astonishing to me wow um so it's so he sees that around this around uh when he was uh, six years old and around that time his father who had fought for the communists in the civil war gave him a copy of jules verne's journey to the center of the earth uh, uh -huh. he actually found it in a box with the tolstoy anthology with a copy of moby dick and a copy of silent spring which indeed will come up oh in yeah and interesting yeah yeah and he starts he starts writing stories in high school um he's influenced by uh, george orwell and arthur c clark those are a couple of really big influences on him uh -huh. um and after he graduates he goes into the engineering business he graduates in 1988 uh from the uh this is a mouthful north china university of water conservancy and electric power there you go yeah and he, well, you and know he what it's about Mm, exactly exactly you know it's right up right what it says on the tin and it and it uh it goes on to he goes on to work as a computer engineer at a power plant in his home province um and he's back and forth well not back and forth like at the at the time that he's working he's also writing and he releases his first novel the following year in 1989 uh called china 2185 um i couldn't find a whole lot on it um it was released on a science fiction forum that he was active on so you know very early adopter of the internet um, yeah what year would that have been you said uh 89 okay 89 yeah very early adopter yeah. yeah yeah and it wasn't it wasn't professionally published he put it on a um he did the salvation war thing right and he put it on a science fiction forum that he was uh active on yeah um but it was uh it was a it was a hit among that community and he became known actually as china's first cyberpunk author okay cool very yeah cool. yeah and uh and there's a, so there's a gap of 13 years from then to his first officially published book in uh, 2002, which is uh, uh, variously translated as The Devil's Bricks or The Devil's Building Blocks. Yeah. Um, and in between that time, he starts writing uh, short stories. And from 1999, uh, they're published pretty regularly in Science Fiction World, which is mm -hmm. China's most popular sci-fi periodical. At one time, I think it was the world's most popular just because, you know, China is enormous. Yeah, it's huge. Um, yeah. And he he uh, he wrote The Wandering Earth in 2000, a short story of his, which was adapted into a film 19 years later. Um, and but the movie is good. From yeah, I've been, yeah. I've had it recommended to me a couple of times now. Yeah, it's going on the list. 
Mm-hmm. And so at this point, uh, when he wasn't otherwise uh, working, um, his writing pace is generally a uh, really brisk three, 5,000 words a day. Jeez. Um, just a, yeah. Yeah. The last few authors we've covered is just yeah. between, uh, between him and uh, Upton Sinclair and uh, Michael Crichton, like, wow, just like all ranging from like, you know, just all in the thousands of words a day. Crazy, crazy. Anyway, oh yeah. 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 Not the most prolific, but certainly not the least. Yeah, but it's um, just the consistency when you're writing this kind of work too. It's so dense, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 at this point, um, at that rate, each of his books takes uh, roughly a year to complete. Uh-huh. Um, and so he follows up. Uh, he follows up with uh, Supernova Era the following year in 2003, which he actually started writing in 1989, shortly after Tiananmen. Um, okay. Because yeah, because he was inspired by the the idea of society being forced to adapt to swift and unprecedented change. Sure. Um, what it's about is a freak space event that kills everybody over the age of thirteen. Okay. Right? So it's it's your, uh, um, you know, kids have to uh, adapt to uh, running the world basically. Reverse left out... behind. Yeah, yeah, and figuring out war diplomacy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then in 2004, he comes out with Ball Lightning, which is sort of a yeah. prequel to Three Body. It's set in the same reference uh, in this book. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, and then, then in 2006 comes uh, his his um, uh, the book that really that he really makes a name for himself with internationally, which is the Three Body Problem. Yeah. And as you said, it's initially serialized in science fiction world. Uh, it wins a Galaxy Award, which is China's most prestigious uh, science fiction award. Uh, it was his third Galaxy at the time. He currently holds okay. nine. Wow. <laughs> That's oh, yeah. awesome. So yeah, it's kind so... of like a Hugo equivalent or something like that, basically? That's exactly what it is. Okay, yes. cool. Yeah. and uh, I do first... think he has some of those, too. The He did. He did. Yeah, I'll get to that. It's Sorry, first... my bad. You're yeah, good. no, you're <laughs> good. You're good. So it's the first novel in the uh, in the trilogy, uh, Remembrance of Earth's Past. Mm. Um, so there's Three Body, then there's The Dark Forest, and then there's uh, Death's End is the third one. Um, yes. And they come out pretty pretty quickly, like 06, 08, uh, tw- and 2010. And so China, the China Educational Publications Import and Export Corporation uh, commissions an English translation of the trilogy in 2012. Uh, the American author, uh, Chinese American author Ken Liu, translated the first and the last book in that series. Mm-hmm. Um, and the English edition, edition, the English edition of Three Body wins a Hugo in 2015. As he said, it's the first Asian novel to do so. Mm. Uh, it's also nominated for a Nebula Award that year, um, and it's it's it wins or is nominated for. Um, the grand like science fiction prize in just about every country whose language it's translated into right. it's, it wins a Kurd Lasvitz prize for the German version. It wins a premio ignotus for the Spanish version. It's nominated for the Grand Prix de la Maginaire for the French version. Uh, the Italian version wins a premio Italia. It wins a Seon for the Japanese version. Like it's, it's a worldwide smash. Barack Obama said that he loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, he's, he's, he's killing it. He is, uh, you know, if you're if you're discussing if you're discussing Chinese sci-fi, Sishin Liu is the guy. It's the guy, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's it's interesting too. Um, you have um, you you have you have a lot of uh, really like fascinating stuff that has come out of this too, out of the three body problem well, sequel. Like for example, the Dark Forest actually as a uh, as a concept has been. Um, you know the 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 dark forest concept as uh, which is basically that um 
you know, that all alien worlds are, you know, being as silent as possible because we're all in a dark forest stalking one another. The concept of the dark forest has actually been adopted now as one of the major theories of the universe. In fact, uh, they had a name before it. I forget exactly what, but it usually gets referred to now on scientific face basis as the dark forest concept. In fact, I had heard about that before I even heard about his book um, because, you know, I was like an alien head in like mm-hmm. um, in high school. Um, it's like, so, so he's had like this real, like massive impact and you can honestly see why, because like he's, it is brilliant. I mean, it, it, for whatever, what, whether the, the novel really like excites the novels really excite you or not, uh, whether you're like into hard sci-fi or how you feel about it, like it's undeniably just incredibly intelligent, very, very smart stuff. Just and an and an incredibly yeah. ambitious scale. Yes, I mean, the, you can the, see the, why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because the central conceit of the of the book, you know, like what it's setting up for is something that'll happen like 450 years in the future that humanity has to yes to unite and prepare for across that time. The whole series itself spans like 18 million years because it goes way way into the future of of uh, of the human race and what it becomes. Not that I've read the second two books, but I'd certainly like to. Yeah. Um, I will note that Greg Bear actually came up with the Dark Forest concept originally, him and uh, David Brin, but mm-hmm. it got changed from uh, just Brin's hypothesis against the Fermi paradox was changed to the dark the uh, the Dark Forest hypothesis, and that does sound a lot better. Which is <laughs> um, do we want to do we want to just like dither into the Fermi paradox right quick? Oh wow, yeah, we can we can absolutely do that. Um, so yeah, the Fermi paradox is basically uh, uh, one of the one of the explanations, or not one of the explanations. It's the fundamental problem of why are we not seeing a lot of proof of extraterrestrial life, right? Because it's like there's a likely high. It, people would say that the idea originally is well, there's a high likelihood of its existence, right? So why aren't we seeing all these radio waves? Why aren't we seeing all this information? Why aren't we seeing alien spaceships? Why aren't we seeing all this kind of stuff? Um, if there are species with faster than travel light, then why aren't they rolling up? You know, the concept, where is everybody? Which comes from Enrico Fermi, uh, the Italian-American physicist, which was, I think, 1950s. Uh, the, the, the sort of, um, when, when he came up with that, the, uh, the sort of, um, uh, the, the sort of uh, idea of where it came from was apparently he just blurted out at lunch, where is everybody? Uh, the exact quote is uncertain, but that is a um, that is sort of the anecdote that gets passed around of how the Fermi paradox got made. And there's a lot of explanations of it. And this book dives into this, into this which is species around uh, – there's plenty of species all around the galaxy, but because other species are such a threat to them uh, naturally because they're so alien, literally uh, – Everybody who, uh, you know, is uh, smart enough to uh, keeps quiet and every species that evolves to the capacity of to be able to send out radio waves um, is smart enough to also know why they shouldn't send out radio waves, except uh, one particular (laughs) species. (laughs) Well, Well, two species, really. Yeah, two species. Well, one of them because they're so confident. um, One of them. The Trisolarians, because they're so confident that they can they can take anybody and because of any uh, in sort of because their own world is doomed. And the other one, because um, it just so happens to come across a nihilistic scientist who says, you know what, uh, alien annihilation sounds fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, dark forest paradox is now a uh, leading theory on why we don't see a lot of uh, a lot of alien um, 
well, any alien um, transmissions. There's a whole lot of explanations. The great filter is the one that I personally think might make more sense, but it doesn't really matter. This is not a, uh, it's not, this isn't that kind of show, though. Uh, you know, if you catch me out, um, you know, catch me out in the wild and get a couple beers in me, I can talk you through my, oh, yeah. uh, my theories on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I'm, you know, I first encountered the uh, the whole "Where is everybody?" idea from uh, from noted scientist Trent Reznor. Um, oh, there you his, go. From the song of the same name, off of his album "The Fragile." There you go. <laughs> anyway, what else? What else do you have to say about our friend uh, Lou Sishin here? Uh, not a whole. That, that was pretty. That was pretty much it. He's uh, he's uh, That's sitting figured, pretty. Yeah. yeah, he's sitting pretty at uh, the age of. Uh, he'll be sixty in uh, in June. He's uh, his most recent novel now is. Um, um so he wrote it in 2010 and it's called of ants and dinosaurs um and then it was renamed uh to uh the cretaceous past uh yeah it, uh, it was translated in uh 2021 so which 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 um but yeah you know he's still he's still uh he's still working he's still putting out uh short stories uh most recently to hold up the sky in 2020 um a lot of this a lot of his stuff i suspect hasn't been translated yet yeah, yeah. When I was looking into it, only only uh, so much of it you can actually uh, get access to, um, you know, ball, stuff like Ball Lightning and, of course, the Remembrance of Earth's Past trilogy. But uh, a lot of his short stories are just uh, yeah. there's like fan translations, but a lot of them lack official translations, um, which is a shame. I'm sure they're very interesting. Yeah, no, I'd love um, to I'd love to get my hands on some back issues of um, some translated back issues of um of science fiction world certainly absolutely oh, and he's and he's nicknamed uh dalu or big lou which is uh relevant to uh my favorite character in this book dashi yes sir yeah 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 uh it's hard for me to imagine that not being someone's favorite character it's just he's so fun mm. um and we'll get to him not a great guy but he's fun <laughs> um cool okay so that's uh that's our background on this and um uh, that that's that's the background of the author and we're you know now you know sort of the relationship of the novel it was very successful especially as this sort of breakout novel that it's it's you know not easy for um you know foreign fiction to break out um into uh foreign markets uh doubly so for say chinese fiction to break into american markets that is i mean you just don't see that happen very often mm -hmm. um so the fact that it happened is remarkable, and I think it speaks to just how novel and interesting it is. Um, but yeah, we'll get into the three-body problem, the novel, which was a, uh, you, I think Ken Liu was what, 2012, you said, was when it was? Uh, 2012 was, was, yeah, when it was commissioned, and um, it came out a couple, of, a couple of years later. Cool, cool. And uh, tour publishers uh, put it out in the United States. Yeah, tour. and also I will say, um, and I really appreciated this. The uh, translation contains quite a few footnotes throughout it, um, yes. explaining references that would be very obvious, perhaps, to a Chinese audience that would not be so obvious to, um, you know, your your hosts of this show. Just you know, random names that you know maybe that for you know someone in China might be like, oh, this makes perfect sense, but you know, something that. Um, I would not know as well. So yeah, that that's that's sort of dotted throughout this. So that's a useful useful context for the translation. And uh, the truth is, at the end of the day, I don't know how perfect the translation is. I've you know, it's a it's it reads solid to me. It reads comprehensive to me. I've read online that people are happy with the translation. But at the end of the day, there is of course something that questions in the back of my head. Wow, I wonder what it is like to read this in the original language. Um, and that's just not something I have access to. 
Well, and apparently, uh, like, I'm 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 vaguely aware that there's there's stuff in the German version as well that was left out of the English. So, sure. Yeah. So I I I have no idea what that what that might entail, but I mean it's it's a solid it's a solid enough story uh, on its own from what I've read. Um, yes. And any so I guess all I can say is anything that we say about this, we are limited by this translation that we have, which is supposed to be a solid translation. But you know, just to do the author credit. Um, there, there are moments in it that I feel like drag and I do wonder is the drag a product of translation or is the drag a product of just this is how it is or is the drag a product of like my short attention span who knows well you know it's um, it's 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 and it's it's um you know uh Lou himself said he didn't begin writing for love of literature he did so for love of science those are his words you know so if um if the if the characters aren't necessary aren't necessarily the most uh, compelling at times, no, he 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 admits that. Like that's that's it's not his first aim. Yeah, and um, ultimately, ultimately, I still find it to be a very very um, interesting. And I, I mean, I was certainly I was certainly uh, driven by this book. I found it very interesting. So let's hop into it. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Yo, go ahead. Yeah. No, it starts out. Um, it starts out during the. It starts in the nineteen sixties. During the Cultural Revolution, there's a conflict between um, two uh, companies of Red Guards, two companies yeah. of uh, armed uh, armed uh, radical students, um, which hap- which which uh, which happens not infrequently at the time. Yeah. Um, and so it starts with the um, it starts with a the conflict. There's a student that uh, that gets gets uh, that gets shot holding a red flag. Yes. And and um, and, you know, um, by the look on her face, she died for something that she truly believed in. Mm-hmm. um which was she like 14 15 I, it's, yeah 14 or 15 years old yeah 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 i mean it's to to believe in something that hard at that age is something incomprehensible to me but you know but a lot of the red guards were that age and yeah. um you know um because a lot of the schools were shut down in that period for this uh you know this period of conflict yes um which you know um talking about these you know these battles between factions and that is um and 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 notably it doesn't really the book doesn't really go into what the battle is really about it you doesn't really get into the meat of what is this particular clash about what are the forces it doesn't actually super matter the um the battle is there as sort of this framing device of the background of the sort of this uh you know uh tumultuous moment in the character's life and you have Mm. um you know our uh, one of our main characters, uh, Ye Winji, is it Winji? Winji, uh, I believe. Winji, um, and she's a recent graduate of astrophysics, um, and she's witnessing her father um, going through a struggle session, which is basically sort of this this uh, moment of public criticism before a crowd of someone who's seen as a counter revolutionary or a reactionary or or sort of in in general seen as a problem, um, and these red guards who are high schoolers. Um, uh, end up killing him in the process. They go, I mean, to say overzealous is 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 is, is underselling it. It's they, they they kill they kill the guy. Um, because he is, um, because he is pushing back against their particular um your particular beliefs about the revolution. And it's um importantly, um the these youths their beliefs about the revolution are like displayed as obviously very um misguided um they are not sure about you know concepts of like astrophysics and the big bang when the guy quotes einstein they're saying oh you're quoting a western imperialist they're these are people who are very passionate and very fiery and they're very all in for this 
you know, anti-colonial struggle and this struggle of liberation, but mm-hmm. because they're so young and because they're empowered in, in this moment and because there's so much chaos, it leads to them, you know, um, making a very tragic decision to to take this man's life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, committing c- committing you know, a very grave error based on, uh, you know. The it's I don't know. I don't know if that specific point about like because his crime, right, is uh, teaching the theory of relativity, which, as you say, is something is something that they consider. Oh, you know, Einstein's this uh, this uh, representative of uh, bourgeois of uh, bourgeois decadence and uh, the theory of relativity is uh, anti-dialectical, this, that, the other. Um, I don't know if that specific point is taken directly from history, but I know there's a footnote in here about. the term for sunspots right being like uh, black spots on the sun or whatever and using that at the time would have gotten you some some scrutiny because uh, black was the color of uh, of anarchists i believe sure sure so it would have been like a kind of a, a confusion of um of language there which i i found it interesting because einstein actually was a socialist so like Indeed. um but not. But that's the point. Isn't uh, that the book's criticizing Einstein though? That it's these these sort of misguided youths who are um, going all in and 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 sort of uh, and using this moment of chaos to sort of uh, you know flex their muscles a little bit. Um, oh yeah. And it and it leads to this moment where yeah, um, she is uh, you know she's I mean to say orphan. She's not you know a child, but she sees her father die, and uh, and it's this you know this moment where she feel she kind of loses a lot of hope in humanity and uh you know the next time you see her she uh the next time you see her she's joined a labor brigade brigade in inner mongolia and is uh working to uh chop down trees and in the forests there um and she's sort of working there she's not um exactly officially like branded a traitor or anything but because of her family's relationship to um you know being on the wrong side of the revolution because her father was who he was she's definitely under extra scrutiny mm-hmm. um and um so she's kind of in this tense position and it's part of the reason that she as an astrophysicist is out there you know working in working in the forests um mostly cutting down forests for lumber in uh in mongolia Yes, yes. And this is where um, this is where we see uh, Silent Spring enter into the narrative, right? Because um, she makes friends with a journalist there who's um, who's who wants to write a letter to the central government because he's read he's read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. He's, you know, recognizes the uh, real book. Yes. To be clear, it's an early 1960s book on the dangers of pesticides. Yes, it was it was like the. I remember learning about it vividly in uh, as early as elementary school. Like this was like the book that uh, that kicked off the the really um, the really um, public awareness that DDT was in fact uh, um, killing um, bald eagles is what you hear about, but you know birds in general, the environment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. Based on that, the uh, the you know the journalist that she befriends wants to um, wants to write a letter that's critical of um, of uh, the government's environmental policies to the government. Um, Wenja helps him with it, um, and he takes full credit for the letter, um, which is more of a which is more of a a, a measure to defend her from like a potential uh, backlash than anything. And indeed, there is a uh, backlash. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, she she eventually they 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 have it eventually though because becomes the the journalist does eventually like turn on her though, right? Yes. Um, 
it becomes a situation where he's just like, oh, no, she wrote the letter. Um, yep. And they're like, OK, your father is on the wrong side of the government. And here you are criticizing the government using these Western sources. Um, and so it seems like uh, she's going to you know, have a bad experience. She's going to have a bad time. But then basically these military physicists are like, hey, we've got this project called the Red Coast Initiative. Um, and it would be super cool to bring you in and have you work with us. Um, and it's not like she's got much going on. Best case scenario right now, she returns to chopping down trees. She doesn't really mm-hmm. want to do that. So she goes with these two guys. Uh, um, um, f- forgive me if I mess this up, but it's Yang Wenang and uh, Lei Shisheng. Is that it? That sounds, that sounds right. Yeah. Yang Wenang and Li Shisheng. Um, which is also how, I mean, I, I looked it up online on how to say it, and that's how they said it as well. So, um, and, and uh, these are these two military physicists who are working on the Red Coast base, which is a just this giant um, satellite dish that is is uh, receiving and sending uh, really powerful signals into space. Um, but for some reason, it is under lock. And the official explanation for that is that it is being done to uh, damage spy satellites but you can kind of pick up from the very beginning that actually they're looking for extraterrestrial life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's worth noting that, uh, you know, this book kind of jumps back and forth. Um, you know, we're speaking kind of chronologically here, uh, but it goes back and forth, right? Because most of the book does take place present day. Yes. Um, but this uh, context is very important and it is where it starts because it is sort of where the plot kicks off. Though this is a plot that takes up place over, you know, not days and months, but rather, you know, decade, years, decades, and honestly, indeed, even like centuries. Uh, if you read all all three books, which I did not, um, it, so this is a very long term plot. So this is it's covering a whole lot of ground for mm-hmm. a uh, for this reason. Um, do we want to just move through it all chronologically, or do we want to kind of follow it the way the book follows the plot? Um, I lean toward, um, I lean toward following the, uh, books structure. Sure. So, right. So you like, so like you meet, uh, Ye Wenjie and the, and you jump into the future where there's the whole central mystery and then you jump back where there's like the context. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Um, so in the future you have our, uh, protagonist, uh, Wang Niao. And yep. he's a professor of nanotechnology. He's uh, received some acclaim for designing these uh, these super uh, these super um, um, these super thin yet super yeah strong... super strands yes. yeah that's yes. like strands of nanotech like nanoparticles that can slice through anything and you don't even see them. Yes, um, they're and also just incredibly strong. They're being designed to potentially be cables that create this elevator <laughs> space. Yes, and it's based on this pedigree that he's uh, contacted by a um, by a sort of a, a hybrid like um, um, governmental slash police slash indeed international uh, body who is investigating um, a very mysterious happening, which is a rash of suicides uh, of several uh, of several scientists. Yes, um, including as it happens, the daughter of uh, Ye Wenjie, who is uh, Yang Dong. Yes, she she has recently killed herself, um, which, um, you know, um, our protagonist, he doesn't have a uh, really much of a relationship to her, but he has met her before. And he like she struck him as like particularly interesting, particularly beautiful. And also just there was like there was something about her that really 
um, struck him in an almost sort of like supernatural way. When he looked at her, he was taking this picture of something in the background and her being there um, was it, it for him just sort of was this out of time moment. Um, so yeah. So hearing that she's dead, it really particularly struck him, but uh, yeah, it's all these scientists are killing themselves and notably all their suicide notes are reading something along the lines of physics isn't real or science is fake or um, you know, everything I thought was a lie, that kind of thing. Like my life's work was for naught and it's, it's driven all these people to madness. Um, and notably the other side of this operation, um, while you've got, um, you know, you, while you've got our main character here, uh, Wang, um, as you know, nanotech and on that side of things, you also have Shi Kang, um, big Shi, a, a very cunning, uh, police officer and detective who has been, um, assigned to this case. And he's a guy who would, uh, most certainly not be an officer anymore if he was just not so good at his job. He's just the classic, uh, you know, damn it, she, you're a, you're, you're a loose cannon, yeah. but you get results. <laughs> exactly. he's, he's that kind of guy. Yeah. Hard, hard drinking, chain smoking, you know, foul mouth. Insults people. Not mm-hmm. very nice. But he, very, pretty, pretty funny and very good. He, incredibly perceptive. Um, you know, he immediately tell can tell, uh, you know, what Wang is thinking. Um, and, uh, and basically even when he's dealing with these huge extraterrestrial things, he's very good at just grounding things and being like, okay, well, what's the next thing we do? Um, yeah. He's got this really, um, let me see. Where is he? Oh yeah. 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 He's got this really uh, interesting worldview, which kind of, uh, which kind of sums, sums up his uh, approach here is because you know, he doesn't ha- He's kind of the polar opposite of Wang, right? You know, he doesn't yeah. have, he doesn't experientially, like he doesn't have the scientific background he does. He doesn't have the sort of educational background that he does, but he, um, he sort of starts pulling on the thread here of what's going on. And what he says uh, that sort of guides him in this is anything, his ultimate rule, anything sufficiently weird must be fishy. Yeah, it's, it's, things are not just just weird for no reason like there is a thing that is happening you know yeah, yeah. which is actually a very grounded uh way of looking at things and and in this world of these theoretical physicists and scientists who are thinking of such big concepts it is very useful to have this guy who is just like nah don't buy it bs you know um yeah. And that's sort of what he brings, even though he, he doesn't understand what they're talking about. If you threw this man into the three-body problem game, he he would quit immediately. Like, he doesn't care about any of that. He doesn't care about the three-body problem itself. But he does care when he sees something strange happening, uh, and everyone's like, there's no explanation. He's like, all right, calm down, egghead. Let's figure this thing out. Oh, yeah. Well, and as well, like like Wang's very, very dismissive of, if I can delve into the text here uh, for a minute, yeah. Wang's very dismissive of him when he says, you know, there's always someone behind things that don't, don't seem to have an explanation. And Wang's like, if you had even basic knowledge of science, you know it's impossible for any force to accomplish the things I experienced. Um, you know, to manipulate things at a universal scale, you can't explain it with our current science. Like Wang's absolutely certain that, you know, his, his understanding of, um, his understanding of, um, of science is that there is no understanding of uh, what's going on. And what is going on is something that we find out from, uh, Yang Dong's partner, uh, Ding Yi, who illustrates to Wang what exactly, um, what exactly is driving physicists batty. 
Um, and he does so through a, um, this is something that you mentioned made it into the uh, like opening sequence of yes, the, uh, TV, the TV, show. TV show, which I'll talk about in a minute, but yeah, go ahead and describe it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. He, he, he sets up um, a pool table at his home and he's like, okay, imagine if I hit the ball this way, you'd expect it to go that way. Right. But he's saying, okay, we run this experiment with these same initial conditions and we get a different result every time. Like the laws of physics say that, you know, these, par- these, uh, these particle accelerators should be doing this when we do this, but we're, you know, there's some factor that's skewing everything and it's calling into question everything that we know about our profession and about right. the laws Basically, of the when they're doing these particle accelerator experiments, it's as if every time you hit a pool ball, it did something completely different. One time you hit the pool ball and it goes in the net, but the next time it goes to the sun. The next time it shrinks. The next time it turns into a bird. It's like he was saying it's that <laughs> level of randomness. It's like, holy cow, when you actually look at things outside our scale, it's all falling apart. These people have like, and in these physicists who see the world in such, you know, in the terms of theoretical physics, physics are acting as if they have had an experience with like a Lovecraftian entity. Like they have had a moment where they're like, everything is a lie. Everything is falling apart. I am bug. Like I'm going to, and these are probably not already not the most like, you know, stable people in the world in the first place, or they wouldn't be theoretical, theoretical physicists. Sorry. So apologies to any theoretical physicists listeners. Uh, but no, 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 no jokes aside. And this is shattering their worldview and it's shattering what they devoted their lives to. And it's yeah. Leading people to either, you know, go off the rails or to just straight up kill themselves. And that's what's, that's what's occurring here um which we do eventually get an explanation for um but uh you know from the beginning it's like no there can be no explanation and it's really only um you know it's it's really only uh uh dashi who is like kind of sees it for what it is which is uh which is uh yeah there must be something behind it Mm -hmm. um but yeah to to go further into it wang is uh you know he's been contacted by these people called the frontiers of science right um and it's this group that uh, has been connected to all these, like all these deaths, all these people who have, um, all these theoretical physicists who have been dying have been in or connected to the frontiers of science, which are this, which is this, this very forward-thinking group, and um, the um, the coalition that's been brought together, security people, um, want you know Wang to look into it, and though at first he kind of rejects the call through a little um, through a little cunning wordplay. Uh, Dashi is able to sort of get him to um, get him to join by basically saying, ah, you wouldn't be able to do it anyway. You know, that reverse psychology thing. And so he joins and he begins to see some really freaky things. Um, He begins to uh, when he takes pictures with his um, camera, he begins to see a countdown on the pictures. It's actually it's very eerie. A few times he sees the countdown like before his eyes. Uh, He has a moment where he's told the background radiation of the universe is going to flicker for him. And in fact, it does when he looks through, I I didn't quite understand exactly what it was, but some machine that allows you to see, uh, you know, the universal radiation waves, it changes uh, before him. Um, The it's as if like God is messing with him at a certain point. Like he is, and, and he begins to naturally fray, which is what a lot of these scientists experienced um among other things um yeah am i would you say i describe that pretty well i mean i like the scene of him going through the pictures a lot because it's very eerie yeah and you know 
Again, I don't know if this uh, countdown thing does eventually lead anywhere. It certainly doesn't by the end of the uh, by the end of the book. One suspects, based on uh, what we learn about why these things are happening, that it's just a red herring. Yeah, it is. It's 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 they're messing with them. Yeah, exactly. Basically, um, and who are they? We will get into it. Thank you for listening to part one of our discussion of the three-body problem. Please come on back next week for part two of this conversation. Uh, And as always, if you like this, you know, let somebody know. We're not a big podcast. We spread by word of mouth, but every single listener is valued, and we really appreciate every one of you. You have a nice day.